about that? Am I, am I lit now? Yes. All right. A Texan goes to see a doctor. He's concerned about some moles on his back. He's concerned they might be cancerous, and so he gets him checked out. The doctor comes back and says, it's okay, they're benign. And the Texan says, well, better count them again, doc. I bet there, I reckon there'd be 10 or, seven, 10 or so of them. Uh, okay, one more. <laughs> People say Jesus never really got mad, but I reckon he got cross. Uh, okay, so the word reckon is more than just southern slang for I think or I imagine or I suppose. Actually, it's, it's still widely used in higher English, especially in British English, because it's considered to be less offensive, less confrontational as saying things like I believe or I think. So there are there's levels of harshness to say the same thing. You say, I think that's rather harsh, I believe that's a little less harsh, or I reckon that's harsh, that's a little less harsh yet. So it's, it's considered more polite to say I reckon rather than I believe or I think. The word reckon actually comes from the world of accounting, and it just simply means to calculate or to add up or to settle accounts. And that word is also used in navigation. There's the term dead reckoning. In dead reckoning, you're trying to discern by way of calculating what your position is and what your course and speed is. Now, the passage that we're looking at today is really about accounting. It's about reckoning. And so I reckon we ought to turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 4, 1. Now, so far in our study through Romans, we've discussed how Paul, speaking in legal language, the language of the courtroom, has uh, indicted all men. They stand before God condemned. They are condemned for the way they live, for rejecting what they know of God, for rejecting Him. They've not lived up to the light they have, to the knowledge that's been given to them. So consequently, all men rightly stand condemned before God, before his court. We've talked about the immoral man with the moral or the ethical man and the religious man. Though they are markedly different from one another, it's an obvious thing. We can look at each other and we say some of us are distinctly more righteous than others. And I gave an illustration of, of the Johnson twins, but some of us are distinctly more righteous than others, but none of us are righteous enough for God to declare us righteous. We are all equally distant um, from what God requires. And consequently, when any man were to stand before God's judgment, God would necessarily have to condemn us. There is no excuse. There is no escape. But that creates a paradox, both, both for us as Christians and for God. For us, we are not righteous. We are guilty. We know that we stand rightly condemned before God. How can we be accepted? How can we become right with God? The paradox also extends to God, who is just and holy. How can He remain holy and just and not condemn us when we deserve it? How does He remain just and not punish sin? Now, we have seen that we are sinners. We have provided, we've been provided with ample evidence to that fact. How is God just in holding sinners in his arms of love. How can a holy God allow unrighteous people, sinful people, into his presence? Um, then we move to chapter 3, verse 21. 
And we are introduced in a very shocking way to this turning point, the turning point in the book of Romans, the turning point in the gospel, the turning point in all redemptive history when Paul says he's, he's created this dilemma for us, but he says, but now, but now something totally different. This is the watershed between two great themes. We are all declared guilty, dead in our sins, stand condemned before a holy God, but now, he says, now we are declared righteous through Jesus Christ. We stand justified before God. Now, if God had not done this, our present condition, our future prospects would be rather bleak. And as we talked about beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is being poured out because of our sin. We are under wrath. Uh, we are, mankind is in spiritual freefall, moral decline. We're, we have no ability, uh, no possibility of, of saving ourselves by our own righteousness. And yet, um, Paul tells us, but now things are different. Now there is hope because of what Jesus has done. Now, he says, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been revealed. In other words, he's saying that we who are unrighteous and sinful now can become righteous and we can be declared righteous without God violating his justice and his holiness. And the way that we are declared righteous by God is what Luther called the, the alien righteousness, eusta alienum, the, the righteousness which is not of ourselves, a righteousness that somebody else had that's transferred or imputed to us, and there's that word, to be reckoned, counted or accounted, credited to. There is a, a righteousness from someone else that is reckoned to us. It is a righteousness extra nos, not of ourselves. It's a righteousness that we desperately need. It's this righteousness in verse 28 where Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? That's the, the, the question of the lifetime, isn't it? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, depending on your version of the Bible, this can be used as accounted, accredited to, or reckoned. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now through the one who works, his wages are not counted or reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, reckoned as righteousness. Now, since our justification rests on someone else's righteousness, which comes to us through faith, and that is not a meritorious work, we have no room to brag about it, nothing that we can boast about. And so Paul now is going to bring forth Exhibit A to prove his point, to, to, to uh, uh, prove his case. And he doesn't bring some abstract exposition of doctrine to us at this point. He brings us uh, his point through historical reconnaissance. He, he reaches back to the Old Testament and he brings up a person that all of them and all of us would instantly recognize, and that is Abraham. Abraham is the supreme example of how a man is justified by faith and not by works. Now, before we get to the exposition of this chapter, beginning in verse 1, it's important to understand 
how salvation is accomplished both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same way. We are saved by grace through faith. And so when we say that Abraham was justified by faith, it's just merely shorthand for saying that Abraham was justified through faith in the righteousness, that alien righteousness of someone else in Jesus Christ. So Abraham looks forward in faith to the person of Jesus Christ. We look through faith back to the person of Jesus Christ. It's just a matter of where you stand in time. But everyone is saved in exactly the same way. They're saved by faith in someone else, faith in another, in the, in the works that someone else has accomplished, not a work that we can accomplish. Now, this is really critically important. I know that you're getting bored by hearing this so many times, but it's important because in our country today, there's a strong tendency to disassociate to uh, this disjunction between how a person is saved in the Old Testament from how a person is saved in the New Testament. The, the inclination is to say, well, people were saved in the Old Testament through works. We have this, the age of the law, where now in the New Testament, we have this age of grace. The reality is we are all saved exactly the same way. There's no plan A and plan B. There's no one way to get saved and another way to get saved. It's always been and always is and always will be one way that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now Paul brings out Abraham. And it's very clear why he does this. He's speaking to Christian Jews at this point, And he brings out Abraham who, apart from Jesus, is the most important person in the whole Bible. I mean, there's a lot of important characters in the Bible, but everyone would agree Abraham is the most important person in the Old Testament, and apart from Jesus, the most important person in the whole Bible. Oh, so you got big shots in the Old Testament, like Moses. You know, Moses delivers his people from captivity. He's the, the giver of the law. He meets God face to face on, on Mount Sinai. He's a big guy. And we got David, you know, the, Israel's greatest king, who put together his spiritual thoughts and his emotional thoughts in, into the Psalms. That, he was a, an important guy. We got Elijah, one of the, the greatest prophets uh, of his time, and Isaiah, a powerful statesman, the voice of God in Israel's dark day. And, Daniel, uh, but if you were to ask any of these great guys, any of these big shots, any of these giants of the faith, who would you say is the most important person in your faith? They would all look back to Abraham. They would all say, Abraham is my father in faith. The, early on in Genesis, and we meet Abraham, who at that time is an idol worshiper. He lives in a very sophisticated city. He's not a hick. Uh, he probably doesn't say reckon, but he lives in a city that has indoor plumbing, and they have a very sophisticated form of writing, a large city, Ur of the Chaldees, and uh, God comes to him and asks him to leave all that and go to a place that he doesn't know of with the promise that he will be the father of many nations. That's Genesis 17, verse 5. And so Abraham believes, which just simply means he believes God is true. He accepts what God says as truthful. That's all that his faith really amounts to. Now, physically, we know that Abraham becomes the father of Israel through Isaac, and he becomes the father of the Arabs through Ishmael. But spiritually, Abraham becomes the father of all, including you, who, like him, 
believe God, and we come to God accepting what he says to be true. So Abraham is our, our father in faith, in our trust uh, in Jesus Christ. Now, um, the, the New Testament um, all, also traces the origins of salvation back to Abraham. And so you have Paul here in, in Romans, what we're talking about now, and also in Galatians chapter 4 and chapter 5. But also, it's not just Paul. The first words out of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. And then you have Luke right at the beginning of his first chapter talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, exalting, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. So where do we start to consider this faith of Abraham? Where's the place to begin with that? And I think it's the same place that we have to begin with ourselves, the acknowledgement that Abraham, like every one of us, was not perfect. His faith was not stellar. Um, there's really nothing in him that could commend him to God and say, here's an example of somebody who deserves to be saved. And God doesn't just look down from heaven one day to see if he could find somebody with just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of this quality of human goodness, just a, a starting point maybe, the, just a tiny little seed of it. And on the basis of that tiny little goodness, decide that he could save such a person. Um, it's, it's not as if God could uh, look down from heaven and say, oh, isn't it wonderful in the midst of this corrupt and sinful race, a, a race which, as I have observed, thinks only of themselves and does evil all the time, that I've discovered at least one individual who wants to serve me. And I see Abraham and his goodness. I think I can make something of him. Now, how could that possibly be true um, when Paul has just told us in Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. And then God's going to say, oh, except one. No, he's saying none. There are no righteous human beings. Abraham may be a great man of faith, but just like you, his faith was imperfect. His faith faltered. Even after he had these encounters with God, he messed up, and he messed up big time. His first trial, there's a famine in Canaan. Rather than turning to God, he turns to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, rather than trusting God, he trusts in Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks his wife is pretty good looking. Abram is, is, is afraid that that this Pharaoh will want to take his wife and kill him. So he lies and says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Go ahead and have her. Every time Abraham fails in his faith, the innocent suffer. When, Abraham, when uh, Sarah fails to produce the promised child, Abraham decides he's going to help God help him. And so he has a child through Hagar, Sarah's maid, uh, who then creates another big problem because she and her son Ishmael become the, the progenitors of the Arab nations, the ones that are constantly at war with Israel. So his disobedience, his lack of faith, 
his faltering faith create all kinds of misery, both for himself and for others. Now, the interesting thing is, jumping back to Romans, by the time that uh, Romans is being written, the rabbis had kind of uh, sugarcoated all this. They had kind of disregarded Abraham's faithlessness, and they taught that Abraham was saved because of his meritorious faith. And if anyone deserved to have God's favor by virtue of his meritorious faith, it would be Abraham. So Paul needs to begin by dispelling any notions that Abraham has this inherent righteousness, that there's something about Abraham that God says, I could make something of this guy. There's, there's no natural good in Abraham. That's not why he's saved. And then, of course, the question would obviously come up, well, then how was he saved? How does he become this paragon of faith that, that Paul and everybody else looks back to? And the answer, it is a gift by God of his righteousness, which Abraham receives by faith. The faith is, is not the meritorious work. The faith is just simply the channel through which righteousness the righteousness of God comes upon Abraham. And so even though Abraham is, con is, is repeatedly disobedient and sinful, you know, although it brings harm to himself and other people, God even uses that um, to bring glory to himself. Not because of Abraham's righteousness, but Abraham is simply chosen by God's elective grace, um, not because of works, uh, even even in the faith that he has. It is counted righteousness. It's not the, the greatness of Abraham's faith. Um, it is the greatness of the God in whom Abraham has placed his faith that, that brings this about. So, so faith is never the reason for justification. It's only the channel through which God's work of redeeming grace comes. It's simply the, faith is just simply the convicted heart which reaches out to God for his free and unmerited salvation. MacArthur said, Paul here makes it clear that saving faith is completely apart from any kind of human works. If a man were able to save himself by his own works, then salvation would be apart from God's grace, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross would have been in vain. If such righteous works were attainable by men, then salvation would not be a gift of God's grace. It would be a wage that is due. Not only would works righteousness obviate God's grace, it would also rob him of glory for which all creation has been made. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The primary purpose of the gospel is not to save men, but to glorify God. In case you missed that last point, the primary purpose of the gospel is not to save men, it is to glorify God. So Paul sets up for us the, uh, a hypothetical syllogism. He, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by work, then he has something to boast about. So here's the major premise. The major premise is that if a man could, do, could be justified by his works, then there would be room, there would be a place for him to brag about it. The minor premise is Abraham uh, was a man who was justified by works, the necessary conclusion would then be that Abraham has something to brag about. Of course, the, the major premise is true. If a person could attain righteousness through his works, 
he would have something to brag about. But the minor premise is not true, that Abraham was justified by works. And so the necessary conclusion is that Abraham does not have something that he can boast about before God. So then we come to verse 5, the idea that God justifies the ungodly. Here's the heart of the conundrum, because that sounds like double talk. It sounds like legal fiction. You're using the same word. You're saying justify and not justify, not just and just. How does God justify the unjust? How are the ungodly righteous? This, this, what happens here is, is a legal declaration. This is not legal fiction. Justification, like we've been talking about, rests on the substitutionary atonement. It's a substitute, Jesus, not you, atonement. Jesus satisfies God's requirements, making us at one at one with God, the substitutionary atonement. So like we talk about in every time we have communion, two things happen. Our guilt is transferred. That's the word reckoned, imputed, counted to. Our guilt is reckoned to Christ, to his account, his righteousness is reckoned, counted to, accredited to our account. So God doesn't just arbitrarily declare guilty sinners not guilty. That's not just. His justice has to be satisfied by causing the sin to be paid for. Of course, it's difficult for us to understand that because in the human world, when someone does wrong, you can only punish the criminal for the wrong he has done. But God can separate the sin from the sinner, and he does so. Everyone deserves condemnation as they stand before God. That's, that's true. But the verdict that we will literally hear, audibly hear one day, when God says, this one is just, righteous, and welcomes us into his presence. What an amazing thought. Martin Luther observed, and these were, the, these were foundational words to the Reformation when he says that God simultaneously declares us both just and sinners. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just and sinner. Not in the same way, of course, because we still remain sinners, but God declares us to be righteous, again, because of that alien righteousness. Now, if you're bored up to this point, I understand because we've covered this ground a lot. But here's where the plot gets really interesting. Verse 6. So you might want to tune in just for this next section, then you can go back to whatever you were doing. <laughs> Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, there's that word again, God reckons righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. So having established that Abraham is reckoned righteousness through the channel of faith, God, or excuse me, Paul now presents to us another key Old Testament figure. He presents to us David. And he presents David in a different light, though he's using the same word. Abraham is given this positive merit, reckoned righteousness, but David is not reckoned. He is not accounted for 
his unrighteousness. Now we are aware that David uh, sinned greatly. He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And yet we are told here, as uh, Paul is quoting from Psalms 32, beginning in verse 1, he, that David has this undeserved righteousness uh, bestowed upon him. Now, again, uh, Paul is using a, a, a very common rabbinical technique of teaching. The idea was if you could find the same word in two different Old Testament passages, well, uh, that'd be obvious if you were rabbinical, wouldn't it? If you find the same word in two passages of Scripture, then the one Word, the, the use of one word in one passage would help to understand the use in the other passage. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here because Genesis 15, 6, when Paul is quoting that Abraham was declared, he was reckoned righteous. And then again in Psalms 32, that, that uh, David is reckoned, he, the, the, the sin is not reckoned, excuse me, against him. They, they use the same word. They use that same legitsotai. It, it means... Um, to, uh, to be counted in, in the Masoretic te text, chassad, uh, to, to be reckoned. And in your ESV, it's that word counted. So both texts use exactly the same word. Now, the reason that David attains this unmerited righteousness is obviously because of his faith, but we have to also consider that how terribly grievous were his sins. The sin of, of adultery, uh, well, I guess even before that, you have the sin of, of coveting. He covets somebody else's wife. He commits adultery, and then he commits murder. The interesting thing about that is these are premeditated sins. These are not sins you slip up and do. And the Old Testament sacrifice system made no provision for such premeditated sin. And so David cries out, Psalms, uh, third, or, uh, Psalms 51 for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David realizes his condition, his position, is absolutely indefensible. There's nothing he could do. Because it's a deliberate sin, there's no Old Testament sacrifice account that, that will pay for that. He simply throws himself on the mercy of the court. There's no sacrifice I can offer you that would make this okay. The sacrifice that God does accept is a broken and contrite heart. Now, this is really important, again, because Paul is using the same word in two different ways. I'm talking about Abraham is using the same word reckon, count, accredited in a positive way. Abraham is positively imputed with righteousness, but now he's saying in the negative form, David's sins are not counted against him. Same word, same terminology. Blessed is he, uh, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. So you have the positive statement of justification and the negative one. Now, in the positive sense, you know, how does a person become right with God? And we talked about that with Abraham. Most people today don't really care. You know, they consider themselves already right with God. You know, God doesn't have a problem with them. 
And if, he, and if he does, it's just a misunderstanding. It's an exaggeration. God's feeling a little bit peevish, and he's going to get over it. So if you were to talk to the average person today, they would feel like there's nothing wrong with their relationship with God. They don't need to have that positive justification that we're talking about Abraham. Abraham gets this positive justification. However, when you come to this testimony of David and you hear about this justification in the negative form, that does speak to the way we feel. Our, we, we realize that we are transgressors, that we have violated what God requires. And here we have this declaration that blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count his sins against us. And because of that, we desperately want to know how do we come to the point where God does not credit our sins against us? How do we come to the point where God does not reckon us guilty? Because you know what? You know you're a sinner. And in your mind, you keep going back to some dastardly sin that you committed some time ago. And you want to know, how can I, how can I be relieved of the guilt that I bear? It was one of my favorite questions to ask different uh, religious people when they come to my door. I love it when they do. I have a regular flow of Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists come to my, and my question is always the same. What do you do about your guilt? How do you deal with the fact that you rightly are declared guilty? You did it. You go back to those times in your, in your, in your, in your mind, and you, and you suffer from, from those guilt actions. And so, that's what's so great about what David says here. He says three things about forgiveness. He says, first of all, that his sin was forgiven, and second, that it is covered, and third, that it is not counted against him. So the first one is that his sin was forgiven. Now, there's a lot of different words in the Bible and in Greek for, the, for forgiveness. The word he uses here for forgiveness means to send off or to send away. Does that bring anything up to you? Leviticus chapter 16, talking about the Day of Atonement. And at the end of the, the work that's done at the end of, of the atonement, the priest comes in and he, he lays his ha hands on the scapegoat, one of two identical twins, the, the one goat to sacrifice. This goat, they lay their hands on this goat. They are transferring their sin to this goat, and then they send it away. It goes off into the wilderness. That's the concept that's, that's being used here, the sending away. And that's important to us because um, we are desperate to have our sins taken away as far as the east is from the west. We don't want those sins to be brought up ever again. And the next term here is the one I find particularly fascinating. He says, whose sin is covered. And so you might be thinking, well, he's shoveling dirt so God doesn't see the sin. Where do you see, again, this concept of the covering of sin in the Old Testament? Well, we'll go right back to Leviticus chapter 16, one that I've been talking to you about for the last several weeks, and that is the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Remember, the mercy seat is the covering of the ark, the ark of the covenant. In the ark are the testimony, the, the words of the law, which each of us has been broken. 
And God sits over the ark, and he looks down upon the broken covenant, the violated law, and he sees guilty human beings. He sees you rightly condemned for breaking the law. But the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. After offering, a, uh, offering for himself, he brings in the blood for the people, and he sprinkles it with his finger in front of and then on the mercy seat so that when God looks down on the broken covenant, he sees the blood of the innocent, which was substitutionally, sub, which was the substitute for your sins, the innocent victim paying the price for the guilty one. That's the concept, I think, that Paul's getting at here when he talks about the covering of, of, of blood, uh, which, which, which keeps us from, God, from God's wrath. Because God doesn't simply just say, yeah, it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm happy enough. Boys will be boys. Everybody sows their wild oats. No, God is wrathful against sin, and if he's just, he has to punish sin. He has to deal with it. And we are declaring through that blood, somebody did pay. Someone was punished. It was Jesus as he hung on the cross in my place. Now, the third thing he says is, blessed is the man whose sin is not counted. There's not reckoned. Blessed is the man whose sin is not counted against him. And what a wonderful thought, you know, that, that uh, God does not credit, reckon, account add up our sins against us. And again, we're talking about this reckoning, this bookkeeping term, and he's basically saying, well, this isn't a good way to do it because happiness and blessedness don't mean the same thing, but to give you an idea where we're going with that, he's basically saying happy, stoked up, joyful is the person in whom God has given a clean slate. How wonderful is it to be able to start clean with God and have no demerits stacked up against us. And God says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. And the psalmist declares, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What great thoughts that because the blood of, cro of the cross at, at, at Calvary, because somebody was punished, God is satisfied. God has dealt with sin. He's satisfied because he hasn't ignored it. He has remained just. The sins were punished. And so as far as I'm concerned, those sins have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. And God will not bring them up against me. What a, what a wonderful testimony. They'll be remembered no more. Let's move on. Verse 9. Now you can go back to sleep. That's what I wanted to say right there. <laughs> but i got to finish the chapter here. Verse 9. Um, is this blessing then for uh, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after. It was, be it was, it was before to circumcision. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, 
so that their righteousness would so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that the, our father Abraham had before he was circumcised okay so that's just a long way of saying historically in time at what point was Abraham saved when was Abraham saved and was it before he was circumcised or after because if he got saved after circumcision as little as we know about the rest of it we can we can say if he if circumcision preceded salvation then circumcision might have something to do with how or why he got saved right are you with me on that but if he got saved before circumcision then in no way whatever circumcision represents to us today in no way was that a necessary prerequisite requirement or merit towards being saved and so then he asked well when was it and the answer was he was saved before so if we look back in the bible we look to genesis 15 verse 6 when god gives the the promise and Abraham receives it by faith Abraham is saved and then it's not until Genesis 17 which is 14 years later that Abraham receives the mark of circumcision so Abraham was not saved by circumcision as often is cited by the Jews that circumcision is the necessary prerequisite to salvation more than that the guarantee of salvation we talked a little bit about this in terms of baptism baptism doesn't save you it is the sign and seal like circumcision was of being part of the covenant community of faith but it's completely independent of salvation so baptism is not salvific it's not necessary for salvation a person is saved before they are baptized so since abraham is not saved by circumcision He's then cited as not only the father physically of the Jews, but he is spiritually the father of those Jews who are saved. So if you're a Jew and you're saved, it's not because you are uh, a descendant of Abraham, nor that you received the sign of circumcision, it's that you were saved the same way Abraham was saved, and that is by faith. And if you were a Gentile who has been saved, it's not because of any similar work or merit that you can point to it's not by it's not by uh, being baptized or confirmed or that you went to mass or that you take communion or that uh, you you tithe or you feel really badly about your sin and so you do acts of penance to make up none of those things as important as they are and as useful as they can be none of those things save a person no one is saved because they do these things Anyone who is saved, Jew or Gentile, is saved by the completed work of Christ on the cross. And in case you doubt that, what was the last word that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. There's nothing more that you can add. And if you think that there is, it's blasphemy. It's to say what Jesus did was not enough. I still need to do something more. Either you've been saved by him or you have not been saved at all. Either you have been saved by his grace, by his meritorious work, which you have received through the channel of faith, or you are not saved at all. It's because of the righteousness of Christ, then, that God reckons us to be righteous. 
It's because of the, the bloody of sacrifice of Christ that God reckons us to be forgiven. There's that positive and the negative aspect of the same word reckon. There is coming a day of reckoning. And all must stand before God and give a reckoning, an account for their lives. How do you reckon you're going to be reckoned on the day of reckoning? Let's pray. Father God, we once more declare we are saved only by the work of Jesus on the cross. And we did nothing. We offered nothing. We contributed nothing except our own desperateness, our own sin, which made that sacrifice necessary. And because we simply accept you at your word, we receive by faith, by trusting in you, that righteousness of Jesus reckoned to our account. And we are so glad to be able to testify with David, though we are desperate sinners, that you will not reckon to us our guilt. We celebrate that through your son, Jesus Christ. Now cause us to ruminate on these truths through the week and to declare your goodness and our hope in you. We ask through the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.